welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership. Going from success to significance doesn't mean you have to give up success. Uh, you surely, surely can be successful and significant at the same time. I would argue that in today's day and age, with a younger audience, it's, hey, I want to be significant now. I want to make a difference now. So the idea of going from success to, to significance was a fantastic tagline in the 90s for the book Halftime, but that's a little dated in my opinion at this point. But for me personally, um, I just started to feel as I got more successful that every time I got more successful, there was another hill to climb. There was always someone else in front of me. There was always, you know, it didn't matter where, what I accomplished. There was always someone else that I needed to try to jump over. And I'm like, well, this is just an endless game for me uh, because it wasn't bringing me happiness. It was bringing me a lot of stress. Most of the time, we define crucible experiences as setbacks and failures. But can success be its own crucible? This week's guest, Dean Nawalny, says that was the case for him. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show. In his conversation with me and Warwick, Nawalny describes how not just keeping up with the Joneses, but surpassing them fueled his career for far too long. He had the corner office, the multiple homes, the plane, but he also had a gnawing sense there was more, that he wasn't living his calling. That changed when he got involved with the Halftime Institute, which helps men and women look beyond their life's bottom line to its impact. He's served the organization as an executive and captured the insights of his work helping others live with legacy in mind in his book, Trade Up, How to Move from Just Making Money to Making a Difference. Well, Dean, thank you so much for being here. I love the title of your book, Trade Up, How to Move from Just Making Money to Making a Difference, and the whole notion of halftime to help uh, leaders of organizations, business leaders, really all leaders, move from success to significance, which is uh, sorely needed in our societies. So tell us just a bit about uh, your family growing up in Wisconsin and uh, kind of the background, which, you know, obviously you end up at halftime, but what was it like for Dean growing up and your family? And, you know, tell us sure. a bit about the backstory. Sure. Yeah, I'm a, I am a cheesehead. I'm a, I'm a Wisconsinite and I uh, grew up in a little town called Wausau, Wisconsin, in North Central Wisconsin and grew up with a uh, Fantastic family, uh, probably a low to middle class family, I would say. We didn't have a lot, but we had everything that we needed. Uh, I have two sisters, and uh, they're all back in Wisconsin and one living in Minnesota. So as a, as a young guy, you know, we, uh, we had what we needed. We were farmers and we worked hard, but uh, I always had this dream at a young age of uh, how can I get out there and be, you know, the next uh, – Warren Buffett or, you know, the, you know, the next Bill Gates. So, uh, as a, as a young man, I ended up, uh, going to a school in Wisconsin and then ended up 
getting hired initially by Arthur Anderson. I went out to be a consultant uh, with Arthur Anderson, then went into the financial services industry. A very uh, Midwestern upbringing family of farmers. It was great. So uh, just in looking at your book, I think, you know, you tend to, I don't know, look over the fence or over the other side of the tracks and just people who are successful and, hey, this could be me. There was just this drive for a young age. I know athletics was huge for you in high school and uh, in college. But um, talk about, I mean, was was that you? Was there any examples in your family? I mean, it seemed like almost from both, you just had this drive to, you know, you wanted to make it in life. You know, you weren't just satisfied with status quo. So where did that come from, that just this drive? Yeah, great question. I, I would say when... I had fantastic parents. Uh, My dad's my best friend, uh, very close to my parents. But we were always comparing ourselves to others. We would see others who had bigger cars or bigger homes and and, and nicer things, if you will. And I just remember us always comparing ourselves to those folks. So as a young kid, it was ingrained into me that, you know what, I want to be one of those folks. I want to have those things because that's what we were looking up to. So I thought, if I can just achieve what they've achieved, and that's success and money and material possessions, that'll bring me happiness. No disrespect to my mom and dad whatsoever, but as a young man, it was ingrained in me as I started to look at others that I want to be like those folks. You know, it's kind of interesting because, yeah, obviously I grew up in Australia, but, you know, definitely respect America. And part of what makes America America is the sense of inventiveness, the willing to try, the willing to fail almost, the um, the sense of, you know, you want your kids to uh, have a better life than you've had. You know, for 150, 200 years, it's always been the ethos. And it's, it's not wrong to want to better yourself and do well and achieve, per se. So, that notion you grew up with is probably a notion that many, if not most American families grow up with, say, you know, I want my kids, if I didn't go to college, I want my kids to go to college. I want them to have a better job than I did. That's generations of family in every state in the country has that ethos. So it's not unusual in that sense. And we'll get into, there's nothing wrong with success, but in of itself, you don't want to worship it. But it I mean, as you look back, that probably wasn't that unusual in that sense. You know, your friends that you hung out with. I mean, it's probably, you weren't the only family that said, hey, we want to better ourselves and do well, right? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, my son right now is 19 years old and he he talks like I did when I was a young kid. I (laughs) want to be wealthy and I want to have all these things. But what ended up happening in my life is that that became the center point of my life. That was the main focus that, that, you know, work was going to bring me happiness if I just focused on that. And uh, so it it was an idol to me. I was obsessed with it at at a young age. So that, that becomes a challenge. Indeed. So let's talk about that. An idol is, is a good word. So you started off in finance, I don't know if it was Arthur Anderson, you were thinking originally accounting, and you thought, ah, oh, I don't think I want to do this. I want to be in sales. I want to be, you know, I want to sell mm-hmm. finance stuff. So talk a bit about those first few jobs as you, I think there was one you were sort of, as young brokers do, dialing for dollars, you know, like 300 calls a day, and you were disciplined, you were on it, and, you know, uh, which is admirable. So talk about those early days as you were kind of working your way out. Sure, sure. 
I did become a stockbroker, but actually it, it wasn't a dream of mine. It happened when I was at Arthur Anderson and the guy next to me said, you know, Nawalny, you don't know what you're doing. What are you doing here? You should go out and get a different job. So that's when I started to think, well, what should I do? I was 23 years old and decided, you know, being a stockbroker sounds like uh, something that'd be really interesting. I knew nothing about stocks, nothing about the financial markets and uh, walked into the Merrill Lynch office way back in 1987 and just said, hey, I, I would really like to become a financial advisor. Do you have a position for me? And I'll never forget it. The gentleman that I was talking to was on his way to the final four basketball tournament. And he said, you know what? I don't have a lot of time right now. You seem like a good kid. Come back in two weeks and you, you have a job. So uh, th that was it. That started my financial uh, career with Merrill Lynch in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, back in 1987. But you're right. I What, what happened at the very beginning as a young financial advisor, my, my boss told me, you know, Dean, you need to make 250 dials every single day, 50 contacts every single day, and then hand the sheet in to me at the end of the evening, <clears throat> which I did. Um, and he said, if you if you live two years like no one else wants to, you'll live the rest of your life like no one else can. And of course, this uh, drug being money for me at the time, I, th that was just music to my ear. So I was just locked and loaded for the next two years. I just dialed for dollars and made the cold calls and and became reasonably successful at a young age at 23, 24 years old. So yeah, that's how I started in the financial business. So over the years, you started kind of moving up the ladder and I'm sure being a manager and and being very successful, you you know had, I think, uh, what, maybe several houses at one point, the lake house, the boat. So talk about, I mean, that, that rise, you know, your dreams did come true in that sense. You were successful, you worked very hard, and I'm sure you earned your success, but talk about that sort of rise up the ladder from young young stockbroker to, a, a, you know, I guess the pinnacle of being a manager of a what, hundred million dollar portfolio at Wells Fargo. So talk a bit about that journey. Any sort of high points on the way? Absolutely, yeah. I, I did become a, I was financial advisor out in Carmel, California. Then moved back to the Midwest, and I was encouraged at that time. Um, to make a transition from Merrill Lynch to a company at the time called Payne Weber, which no longer exists, but they merged with Kidder Peabody and ultimately uh, were bought by UBS. And I was encouraged at that time to move to Chicago and be, go into management. What ended up happening is, is during that time, one of my crucible moments happened in 1994, right after I moved over to this new organization, uh, I ended up going through a very difficult divorce at a, at a young age, and I had to start over. Uh, here I am uh, in 1994. I'm 31. I'm successful. I'm making money, have all these different toys, married, and, and pretty soon everything unraveled, and I had to, had to start over. But as uh, I started over, uh, I moved to Chicago, got into management, started moving up the ladder and, and did various jobs with UBS. I went down to Texas and then back to Chicago and then became a regional manager and, and uh, a market manager. And, but at the same time, as I started to rebuild it, I, I met this beautiful lady who's my wife, Lisa, and had two fantastic kids. And uh, like you said, started accumulating possessions. We had a home in Chicago and a home outside of Chicago and a lake house. And actually I became a pilot at that time and had a little 
little airplane, nothing major, single mm-hmm. engine, but a little airplane in a boat. And I'm, I was thinking to myself, that, you know, as I continue to make money and accumulate these things, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna have more joy in my life and more happiness. And what ended up happening, it was the complete opposite for me. It was the opposite. I actually had a bout with hives, and I was so stressed out, thinking, well, I have to pay the insurance on that house. I have to get the airplane fixed. I got to take care of the boat. That I was so stressed out about taking care of my stuff that. In 2006, I just had this moment where I just said, there there just has to be more to life than this. So, so, so talk about that yeah. scene. I think you write in the book, was it like the 40th floor of some massive skyscraper in Chicago and you're looking out? So just talk about that moment because it feels like that's one of the pivotal moments in your life. It's just like, you know, what is life about? So take us through that moment a bit as you're staring out that window. Sure. I'm going to back up just a little bit. In 1999 or in, in 1995, I accepted Christ and, and started going to a church in Chicago. And my first thought was, well, if I if I accept Christ, I have to leave the marketplace and go into the ministry. I'm not supposed to right. stay in the marketplace. Right. And, and the pastor that weekend said, well, if everyone left the marketplace and went into the ministry, who would be a light in a dark world? So I was like, oh, well, I, I'll stay in the marketplace. But in 1999, there was this gentleman that got interviewed, uh, uh, Bob Buford, and I was in the third row, and I was thinking, boy, that guy's impressive. He's talking about going from success to significance. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm all about this success thing. I'm not so sure about this significance (laughs) piece. But then we fast forward six years from there to 2006, 40th floor of the Mercantile Exchange building, the corner office all the homes and the airplane and the boats, beautiful wife, kids. And I just looked out the window one day, I shut the door, looked out the window one day and just said, God, there has to be more to life than this. There has to be more to life than this. And I, it was up to that point work that I spent so much time focusing on myself. It was all about me and accumulating things and making me happy. And I never started, I wasn't thinking of others. And I just remember that day really, really well. I didn't hear an audible voice, but I felt the Lord say, Dean, I have other plans for your life. Start to simplify your life. And and that that was the episode on the 40th floor. It was a game changer. And my boss uh, actually reached out to me uh, two weeks later and said, "Uh, would you be interested in doing a book study? And I said, absolutely. What's the book? And he said, it's halftime. I'd like to read the book halftime. I said, well, I heard that guy get interviewed in 1999. And that that was just perfect. So what's fascinating about your story is it's not as a simple kind of Paul road to Damascus moment. It seemed like it was a journey. You know, you'd come to faith in Christ at a you know church in Chicago a few years before. You'd heard Bob Buford, who, you know, for listeners, you know, uh, I think it was from Texas and had a bunch of TV stations and was very successful and obviously you know better than I do, but lost a son in a, I think a, a drowning accident which ch- turned his life and gosh, there's, what is life about? You, know, you lose your only son, that's about as devastating as it could possibly can be. But it wasn't like this road to Damascus moment, okay, I've accepted Jesus, boom, you know, Dean Namolny's life instantly turns on a dime. It sounds like it which is, I think it's more realistic because for most people that don't, life doesn't change overnight. It's almost like being an aircraft carrier, right? It changes slowly. So just talk a bit about that journey because I think it's very realistic and it's more typical. You're right. I 
I heard that, you know, when I heard Bob speak in 1999 and he talked about this idea of going from success to significance, that really did begin a journey for me that I didn't even realize at the time that just little by little, I started to look outward and I started to volunteer and I did, I worked, uh, you know, I, I served at a homeless shelter and I helped the homeless put resumes together so they could go out and get gainfully employed. And, but God was using that time in my life to, as building blocks to get me to this point of 2006. And, uh, you know, it, everyone doesn't need to make a transition like Bob Buford did from the marketplace to the ministry or like I did. Most people actually stay in the marketplace. But for me, it was a journey. And uh, it, it, if I look back, it's interesting. You can connect the dots and how it was a building block kind of effect up to 2006 when I had the 40th floor office experience. We're going to get into what significance is and how you discovered that. But for the listener who's, who hears, you know, this in, in apposition, the idea of success and significance and things, yeah, success still sounds like it might be kind of interesting. It's very rare uh, to be sitting in a virtual space with two individuals who have had after their names, a hundred million dollars in your case, Dean, uh, uh, billions in your case, Warwick, and, and both of you have come to the same conclusion that that success didn't bring happiness. For people who hear that sometimes and think it's empty, right? This idea of success doesn't really fulfill, that's ah, not true. Success would fulfill me. It was just, you're, you had a problem with it. Talk a little bit, Dean, about what was it about success that was unfulfilling for you ultimately? There you were, you were saying that the other side of the tracks is where happiness lies. It wasn't that. What was the, I mean, was there a, a moment besides your your health failing? I mean, when did you start to sort of sniff that success just wasn't what you had made it out to be when you were younger? Yeah, great question, Gary. Yeah, uh, Just to clarify too, I, I wasn't personally worth a hundred million. I managed a hundred million dollar business, but, um, yeah, what ended up happening is as I started to, to be successful and started getting promoted and in making more money and accumulating more things, it actually had the opposite effect for me. Like I said earlier, it started to cause me to be more stressed than I was without those things. So I really had to take time and think through why is that? And what I want to make sure and say here is that going from success to significance doesn't mean you have to give up success. Mm -hmm. uh, you surely, surely can be successful and significant at the same time. I would argue that in today's day and age with a younger audience, it's, hey, I want to be significant now. I want to make a difference now. So the idea of going from success for, to significance was a fantastic tagline in the 90s for the book Halftime, but that's a little dated in my opinion at this point. But for me personally, um, I just started to feel as I got more successful that every time I got more successful, there was another hill to climb. There was always someone else in front of me. There was always, mm -hmm. you know, it didn't matter where what I accomplished, there was always someone else that I needed to try to jump over. And I'm like, well, this is just an endless game for me uh, because it wasn't bringing me happiness. It was bringing me a lot of stress. Yeah. You were constantly crossing over the tracks, right? 
you were constantly trying to get to whatever was on the other side of the tracks over and over and over again. That's got to be exhausting. Yeah, it, it was for me personally. For many others, it, it may not be. And having material possessions and money and all that, there's nothing wrong with that. It's for me, what was wrong with it is I made those things an idol. That was my total focus, right? So this idea of a, making money, nothing wrong with that. We need people to make money. Hey, our nonprofit needs money. So make money, you know, but the reality <laughs> is how do you use that money? What, what is the, is the money for personal gain or what is it really for? Yeah, no, no it's, it's such a good point what you're saying. And I mean, I, I have, uh, as listeners know, a very different journey, similar experience, but about as different a journey as you can imagine. Right. And listeners know this, but, you know, I grew up in about as wealthy a uh, family as you can imagine in Sydney Street, 150-year-old, uh, very large media company, newspapers, TV, magazines. Not only did we have wealth, but we had status and respect. So for people in the marketplace, that's, you know, you've won the lottery at that point. It's not, we didn't just have money. We had respect in society. Money, respect, status. What more is there that you want in life? Some people have money, but are not respected at all. You know, but when you have all of them, you've, you've got everything the world says that you would want. And so we had that. But yeah, you know, we had parties with, you know, people from Hollywood, ambassadors, business leaders, and it just all seemed to me so empty growing up. Everybody trying to impress each other with the deals they'd done and, you know, royalty they'd met or whatever. And it just seemed so empty that it, I don't know, it never was attractive to me. So I was almost inoculated at a young age. Yeah, I'd experienced all that and it certainly wasn't making my family happy, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. And if itself was, you know, Wealthy families have typically lots of problems. If I can jump in right before you turn into and, and and say something to our listeners that I think is fascinating by both of the stories that you've just told, because it's very rare it happens on on Beyond the Crucible that this is true. In some ways, is it true for both of you that success was its own crucible? The way that you experienced success, the way that you chased it, the way that you sort of wrapped yourself around it, did that become at some point for both of you your own crucible? I'll chime in here. I, I would say for me, it's still a crucible that I'm working on. Um, I, absolutely, it was a crucible for me because it was my driving focus day in and day out. And uh, it, but but back Prior to going through the halftime program and what I'm doing now in the nonprofit world, the idea was all about myself and focused on myself. Once I went through the program, I started thinking of others and and trying to make a difference with my finances. But I'll tell you every day, even now when I get up, I'm still I still have to pray every morning that that doesn't become an idol Mm -hmm. for me and that I don't focus on it day in and day out. And I'd love to say I'm succeeding at that, but I'm not. I, I have to work at that every single day. Yeah, I mean, I want to come back to that in a second because that's such a, and th- thank you for being so honest about it because that is that is helpful. But yeah, for me, I guess the pinnacle of success, if you will, is you know, I launched this $2.25 billion takeover in late August 87. And within a few months, it quote unquote succeeded. And I was controlling shareholder proprietor of this big company at age 26. The world would say, boy, controlling a multi-billion dollar company at 26, that's pretty good. Not too many people have achieved that kind of benchmark. 
and a media company that had the equivalent of the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. But yet, you know, it was kind of miserable because, you know, it was all, as listeners know, all about duty and living up to my great-great-grandfather's vision. And I wasn't even fulfilling my own vision. So it was, as soon as we had succeeded, it was it was miserable. I just did not want to be there. I, there was no joy, uh, even though for me, it wasn't so much about money. It was this idealistic vision. But um, yeah, I think what you just said about being aware of your idols and temptations, a wise man or woman does that. For me, it's not money, but it's more, you know, my Wikipedia entry until recently was young, hot-headed kid could have had it all and blew it. Do I mind that? Yes, I do mind that. So, you know, would it be nice if folks in Australia and the media gave me a little, a little ounce of respect one day? It may never happen, but do I mind that? Sure. So, you know, with this book that when, when I first got a, a copy of that book uh, a number of months ago, like in April, I was literally on my knees in prayer and saying, Lord, I don't care whether this book sells one or 10,000, my self-worth is not going to be bound up in book sales. My sense of, okay, his back, finally, I'll get some respect here. Some, you know, I don't want that desire for respect and that desire for redemption in the world's eyes to uh, define who I am. And yes, I'm human. So if a gossip column comes out in one of the Australian papers, as it did a few weeks ago, and it was the snarky stuff like, um, hey, you know, uh, Warwick has a book which he'll sell you for a price. It's like, who sells a book for nothing? I mean, you know, and it's like Warwick talks about failure. Well, he'd be an expert on that, wouldn't he? It's like, really? Did I mind that? Yes, I minded that. No, I mean, I've gotten over it, kind of, but do I mind that? Yes. So (laughs) money is not my deal. It's more respect, redemption. And so, you know, know your, for me, I wouldn't say idle, but know your temptations. And when you feel that, that little, negative thought coming. If you're a person of faith, get on your knees, pray and say, Lord, help me with this temptation. Don't let me, don't let me have my self-esteem wrapped up in money, redemption, respect. It's for my and your perspective, it's only in you, Lord, not. So yeah, my temptations are different, but they're still temptations, if that makes sense. Let's talk about halftime and your book, Trade Up, because I think this is fascinating. And there is one story in the transition that I don't know is your wife is her name is um, your wife's name is Lisa 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 I don't know that whether she's a prophet but I guess she kind of was at one point which is just <laughs> crazy so talk about that prophetic moment that she had about your role in halftime at the which at the time seemed like crazy stuff right yeah yeah it did uh, so uh, I think she's a prophet but <laughs> anyway uh, what ended up happening is uh, in two in 2008, I went through the halftime program after having this 40th floor office experience. And uh, one thing I realized at that point is I'm going to figure out what God wants to do through me one way or another. And we read the book halftime, went down to the halftime program, which was fabulous. And uh, but at that point, I was still working in the marketplace at that. We we transitioned from Wachovia to Wells Fargo Advisors. And I, I was working there in Chicago overseeing that business. And uh, Lisa loved Southern California, still loves Southern California and Chicago. She knew of those two <laughs> places on the map. Right. And uh, I said, well, what, why don't we go to Laguna Beach? Uh, they're having a halftime event. You can enjoy California and I can enjoy halftime. 
And uh, so we went together and uh, in the, I had an interaction with a gentleman from uh, Bob Buford's organization there that day. And uh, he came up and said, Hey Dean, I really would like to get to know you better. Do you mind if I come up to Chicago and spend a little bit of time with you? And I said, sure. Right. You know, at that time, halftime was looking to get into the financial services a little bit and, and, uh, and partner with some financial services organizations. So I thought, sure, come on up to Chicago. Well, that night we go to bed at three o'clock in the morning. And this is not like my wife whatsoever, by the way. Uh, woke up at three o'clock in the morning. She's sitting straight up. And I said, what, what happened? She could, I just had a dream. I said, a dream about what? She said, the dream was about we're moving from Chicago to Dallas, Texas, and you're going to become the CEO of the Halftime Institute. And I said, Lisa, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. I said, they probably want me to come to, to talk about the financial services industry and that, that connection. She said, no, you're going to become the CEO and we're moving to Dallas, Texas. Well, I knew when she said Dallas, Texas, that that had to be from the Lord because it wasn't from her. Right? <laughs> that's not where we were thinking of moving. But nonetheless, uh, he came and, and uh, four months later, uh, they offered me the position, as you mentioned earlier, of managing director of halftime. So I said, Lisa, see, I wasn't the CEO. I was the managing director. <laughs> and then a year later, they changed it and said, now you're the CEO. So yeah, it was a dream that she had. That's why we're here. So talk a bit about halftime and because not everybody will be familiar with halftime. And then obviously that leads into your book. So what is the mission of, of halftime? What's its vision? Sure. The, the vision really is to help men and women around the world identify what we call their Ephesians 2.10 calling. So Ephesians said, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he has prepared beforehand. So we believe that everyone has good works that the Lord has given to them. And halftime helps men and women all over the world identify what are their strengths, what are their spiritual gifts, what are their passions. And we connect them into those things. So we really teach, coach, and connect individuals around the world into their 210 calling, as we like to say. You know, one of the things I found fascinating in your book, and I can relate to this, that a lot of churches and places, somebody, some business man or woman comes to faith, and it's like, they don't know what to do. So maybe they start being an usher or, you know, uh, setting chairs, and there's nothing wrong with doing any of that. But the question is, from God's perspective, is that the best use of their gifts for the kingdom, uh, setting chairs or being an usher? Again, it's not about it being beneath you, but it's 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 kind of what's, um, you know, and it's funny, I guess that there's a story in my life that really um, directly relates to, I think, to me, what's a core from what I understand, halftime concept is just leading to your gifting and I would say God-given passions and calling. Uh, there was a time, as listeners would know, I was, you know, back in the 90s when I was not doing too well, just after, you know, this whole company went under and felt like I'd, you know, um, let God down. You know, the founder of the company was a strong believer. It was a pretty, when, when you feel like you've let God down, that's a pretty crushing crucible for a believer. Anyway, I ended up working in uh, aviation services company doing financial and business analysis because I'm pretty analytical and I can do that. But I remember in 2003, I felt like the Lord telling me, you know, you're playing small. You're not honoring me with all the gifts and abilities that I've given you. And it wasn't so much that it was beneath me. 
but yet I had more out of office. Then I got into coaching a couple of nonprofit boards, including my church board, and then from there, Crucible Leadership, which is a whole nother story. But that was an that was a pivot point for me, feeling like the Lord saying, "You're playing small. You're not, you're you're dishonoring me because you're not using all of the gifts you have for the kingdom." That feels like a, you know I didn't know it at the time, but it's sort of a, a halftime way of thinking, wouldn't you say, in terms of halftime's mm, philosophy? I, absolutely, yeah. I you know, work. I, I I like to say, you know, volunteering is something you get to do. Um, your calling is something you have to do. And very rarely do folks take the time to really understand what is their true calling. You know, God gifts us and and, and provides us with strengths and spiritual gifts and, and abilities. And I believe he wants to use those and plug them into areas of need. And like we say, things that Jesus really cares about, you know, the orphans, the widows, the prisoners, others. So when I was younger, I, I, I volunteered, like I said, for a homeless shelter, which was fantastic. I loved it. I, I enjoyed helping them put their resumes together. But my skill set and my ability allowed me to do more than that and make a bigger impact. It's the leverage impact. So um, I agree with what you're saying. So talk about how halftime does this, because you know we talk about about this a bit in in crucible leadership. But so let's say uh, a leader comes in, you know they're probably still on the fast track initially, but they're curious about halftime and about Jesus and all. So how do you begin to turn that ship in terms of finding their their calling? Talk a little bit, at least at a high level, some of the elements that halftime does to try to. You know, is that uh, newbie uh, CEO type comes in and is all about focus on success, but yet they're curious about the Lord and you're trying to turn them, you know, into, you know, what's the Ephesians 2.10 work that God would have for them. So how do you do that? Because it sounds like it's not an easy thing to achieve or to accomplish. Yeah, most folks who come through the program are at that point that I was at, that smoldering discontent state, trying to figure out. What is my life really all about? And most successful leaders, not all, but most successful leaders that I've encountered really struggle to have close relationships, close friends, and, and, and they're lonely, right? If you're a CEO or a leader and you're struggling through a crucible issue, who do you go talk to? You're not going to talk to your staff or your team. And so most come ready to really figure out what does God want to do through me? What's the next season look like? And all people want to leave a legacy and have an impact and make a difference. So when they get there, we we have uh, different exercises that really allow that person to be vulnerable and open and safe. And we go about it in such a way that once they get authentic and real, uh, we start talking about the head journey, which is, of course, the head journey has to do with we we decide what we think we're going to do or what we're good at. But then there's the heart journey. There's the Holy Spirit. There's the guidance from God who, who guides you. So it's the head and heart journey. So at first, you're right. When they get there, I would say most are struggling through something. They're unhappy. They're, they're at this point where I want more to my life. I want to make a mm-hmm. difference. It may be initially they're struggling in their marriage or with their kids or don't have relationships there. So we help with those things to help them get free and then get clear and get going, as as we'd like to say. 
So it's an it's a very interesting process that if they if someone comes in and they have an arrogance about them and they're not ready to be coached and and they're not in that season, it is difficult. You're absolutely right. But most are ready to do that. And you have a couple of fascinating things. I think you you talk about also in your book, the whole 80th birthday party experience. What do you want your legacy to be? That's a, such a powerful question. Talk just a little bit about that whole, the concept of legacy and that 80th birthday party image, because it's a fascinating image. Yeah, it brings back scary memories for me, <laughs> quite honestly. But uh, I remember uh, what ended up happening. I was working at the time still in the marketplace, and I actually did go to a, a funeral for a lady who was a, a teacher, and there was 500, 1,000 people there. And uh, I was like, why are so many people here? And they said, well, it's because the impact that she had on their lives, the difference she made. Right? And I thought that I was sitting in the pew thinking to myself, well, if today was my funeral, one, would anyone show up? But secondly, what would they say about me? And that was a very scary thought at the time. So when I got to halftime, they do an 80th birthday party exercise. I guess now we should up it to 85 or 90. <laughs> but uh, you're invited to your birthday party. Uh, you know, your your wife or good friend takes you out or spouse takes you out. And 200 of your closest friends are in the room. And there's a microphone up in the front of the room. And one by one, they walk up and talk about the difference you made on humanity, not on yourself. What difference have you made on humanity? What difference have you made on others? And what would you like to hear? And I remember when we went through that exercise, I was like, they would say, hey, Dean's successful, making a lot of money, he has all these different toys. But the the impact I had on others or humanity was very minimal at the time. So it's an exercise as you think forward you know, at the, at the end of your life, what do you want your legacy to be? What impact have you had? That's the 80th birthday party. I, I love that. And one of the things I sometimes talk about, obviously, in the world of finance, you talk about ROI, but I often think, what about EROI, the eternal return on investment, you know? Mm. And I wonder if the time is like, hey, what's my EROI? What kind of impact am I having for the kingdom? How, you know, would I invest in me, you know, at that age? I mean, that would have been a... An interesting conversation at that time, you know, uh, would, would I get yeah. the, you know, buy well the stock or not buy the stock from a kingdom perspective? Well said. I never thought about it that way, but you're right. But uh, and one of the other things I love about um, Halftime is you talk about having a personal board of directors that will ask good questions. But, you know, these are people that know you. I think you mentioned, you know, you, your wife, your coach within Halftime. But Talk about that whole concept because most people do not have a personal board of directors that have the backstage pass, the freedom to say, hey, Dean, Warwick, you know, there's a problem here. You know, it's really, really, I mean, who does, who sets themselves up for those conversations? You know, like nobody. So talk about why that's so powerful. Yeah. Uh, the, the personal board of directors is critical. I think it's right up there with coaching uh, that, that we do at halftime. The personal board of directors, to have those cheerleaders, when you need those cheerleaders, when you're down and you're struggling, you know, you need cheerleaders around you. When we talk about the characteristics of someone who finish, finishes well, there's five things. And one is have a group of encouragers around you. So the personal board of directors, for me personally, uh, has been life-changing. Uh, I, I identify four personal board 
members, if you will. And in any good company, of course, has a strong board. Mm -hmm. And uh, so for my board, I actually have someone when I'm having marital issues or issues with my children, there's someone who's a pastor that I would reach out to for that. And if I'm having challenges maybe around business, uh, there's someone that I I, uh, chat uh, regarding that. So I have four to five folks on my personal board of directors, but they have carte blanche. They can uh, they can say anything to me, and I want them to say what's on their heart. It might not be what I want to hear, but I it, it's probably what I need to hear, right? So I I don't mind them sharing. And if it's the person that at three thirty in the morning, if I have a major issue, is going to answer the phone and be there. And you're right, most don't have that, but it's really something that's vital to have. For sure. Yeah, just keep you on the path you want to be on. You mentioned those five things. Um, five, are these the five characteristics of leaving a legacy? Th- those are the five you're talking about. So just give us a little overview of those five. Because you mentioned, I guess, the second one is maybe cheerleaders, you know, the personal board of directors. But talk about some of the other five. Sure. So health, health is critical. So the the five characteristics of those who finish well really has come out of countless hours of coaching over the years, tens of thousands of hours. And the five that have come out of that, believe it or not, is number one, those who ex- who succeed and, and win uh, and leave a legacy have taken care of their health because it's hard to go and live out your Ephesians 2.10 calling if you're not healthy. Indeed. Right? And so you, you need to be healthy. They're flexible, flexible, meaning as we get older, and I'm surely guilty of this, I'm old, getting old and stodgy. I don't want to make changes. I don't want to make adjustments. My son just had a football game that was uh, changed 10 miles away. And I was complaining about them changing the site. <laughs> you know, so not very flexible, but those who are flexible uh, at, uh, ops absolutely succeed. Then you have, I already mentioned that the, the encouragers, those folks around you who are encouragers. And of course your spouse and others, you want to identify those folks. Um, the fourth would be your family. Put your family number one. This was a big learning for me. Uh, when I went to halftime, I remember Bob Buford asked me, where's Lisa in all this? And I said, well, I don't know where Lisa is, but I know I need to get going and I got to <laughs> figure out my 210 call and I'm going. Right. He said, Dean, whatever you do, just stop, uh, stop. And uh, so putting others' uh, interests ahead of your own. And then, of course, your calling. And figuring out what is your Ephesians 2.10 calling? What's God's calling on your life? Those are the five. I was going to say, speaking of calling, one of my callings as co-host of Beyond the Crucible is to know when the <laughs> sound I hear in the distance is the captain turning on the fasten seatbelt sign to indicate that we're getting close to when we're going to land the plane. We're not going to land it yet, but it's time to gather our peanut bags up and get ready to give them to the flight attendants to throw away. Uh, so Warwick, is in, in the time we have left, I know you have some questions you want to ask Dean. Uh, go ahead and do that. Just wanted to fulfill my calling as, as the co-host. All good. All good. I guess as we kind of wrap up, I mean, there's so much in the book that we can't get to. And you know, I'd encourage um, all listeners to um, get trade up uh, how to move from just making money to making a difference. And I love the phrase that, that you and uh, Halftime use. It's not it's from not just from success to significance, but success to significance to surrender. I mean, oh my gosh, that's yeah. a powerful concept. So um, 
I wanted to just, this may be last question in maybe I think it's first chapter, you ask these three incredible questions like, is there not a cause? Is there in you a sweet spot and what is your giant, uh, which is kind of a, you know, the smoldering discontent, but just that notion, is there not a cause? I guess that's relating to calling, right? I mean, that's like the first question you start out with the book, you use the example of David. So talk about, because I love that phrase, is there not a cause? So to just talk about that phrase. Most folks, uh, or a lot of folks, feel they don't have a passion around anything. And what we find out is everyone's passionate about something. Everyone's passionate about some cause. So we do an exercise where we ask folks, you know, why don't you read the USA Today for a week and come back to us and let us know what makes you mad, sad, or glad? What really catches you, right? So this idea of having a cause or something that you really care about, that you're passionate about, everyone has it, it but it takes time to uncover it. It's, it's not a weekend seminar where all of a sudden it just kind of pops up. Now, it can happen that way, but usually it takes time to uncover it. The second part is I think folks sometimes make it too complicated. Uh, we have a lady that went through the halftime program and she said, you know what I love to do? I love to rock babies. So she rocks babies of drug addicted mothers in Houston at, at a hospital. Hmm. Another gentleman went through and his passion was prayer. He wanted to see more prayer and he invited a few folks to pray. And that has turned into the global day of prayer. So his passion was prayer. Her passion was rocking babies. Everyone has a passion. And I remember a, a, something that really stands out to me when we had a group in and the gentleman said, I'm, I'm really not passionate about anything. And about 30 seconds later, he starts talking about, I just wish everyone could go to college. I don't know why some get to go to college and some don't. And, I, and, and right there was his passion. Right. right? right. Education for everyone. So the cause, the, the cause, is there not a cause? Everyone has a cause. Everyone has a passion. And within that cause is somebody's God-given calling. And, you know, as, as we say in Crucible Leadership, you want to align it with your divine design because our belief is God doesn't make mistakes. So if he designed you a certain way, he wants you to use that for his purpose. So you, you link up your design, you know, your God-given passions with um, calling in our world often that can come out of a crucible. Doesn't have to, but you know, I, know, I don't want anybody ever to go through what I went through, whether it's abuse or could be a cancer survivor. So, all in there is calling. And maybe the final observation for me, at least, is as I've found that I've you know used uh, my brokenness and gifting for I'd like to think a kingdom calling. There's some level of not just joy but healing. It makes it make it easier to to go through the pain. And I guess as we close here, I mean, have you found that? Because look, I've certainly made massive mistakes and it sounds like you've made some things that maybe you would look at as maybe suboptimal choices. In other words, maybe mistakes, uh, but does it sure. make it easier to deal with when it's like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm living my Ephesians 210 calling and uh, do you know what I mean? Because sometimes we can be our own worst critic and it's like, okay, I was young, I made mistakes, but it's when you're using your gifting in service of others, maybe it's a little easier to forgive yourself a little bit. If that makes some degree of sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd even add to that, that sometimes the pain in your life is 
ultimately turns into your calling. Mm-hmm. It, it has for you and it has for others. Who who better to guide and coach than someone who's been down a path that you're struggling with? So it may be divorce. It, uh, who knows what it may be? Uh, but yeah, sometimes pain turns into this opportunity to help others. And ultimately, you find joy in the pain that you had before because you're serving others for sure. Absolutely. And as you know, you come across some maybe 30, 40 something uh, person in the world of finance is just killing it and, you know, got the fast car and the boat and the houses and is doing great. Who better to talk to that person than Dean Nawalny? It's like, I've been there. Mm. You know, I was you. You know, you don't want to be doing that in 20 years time. You know, you'll probably, you'll have no relationship with your wife, kids. Um, You know, trust me, you don't want to be there. So, you know, you'll be the perfect person to minister to that person, right? So, you know, um, well, thank you. Thank you for what you do. And I love what you do in halftime and uh, just your, your book trade up, how to move from just making money to making a difference. And really, I want listeners to hear, you know, we're not against success. You just don't want success, as you very well put it, to be an idol. Success is fine if you have it, you know, um, use it for the right purposes. You just don't want to worship it, you know, worship it easier said than done. But um, yeah, Halftime is a great organization. They will help you understand in a practical ways how to move from success to significance and ultimately to surrender. I mean, it's all the Lord's and we're just here as managers and his servants. So that's sort of the ultimate, the ultimate destination spiritually and in terms of joy and fulfillment. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. Gary, thank you. The flight manifest would say that this is the time for the captain to actually land the plane, but I've radioed the cockpit to (laughs) delay that a little bit because I want to make one thing clear to our listeners from you, Dean, and that is this. I think when people hear the name halftime, they're like me. They may not be very good at math, but they can divide things in two and they go, okay, halftime, if you're supposed to kind of change your life from success to significance. Halftime means uh, if the average life expectancy is, let's say, 85, there I go, I give myself a number, 84, you go to 42, it's at 42 that you're supposed to do this. It's not exactly that specific. You've described it. It's not so much an age halftime as it's what? How would you define it for people to help them understand? Sure. It's It's a season of life. It's the season that you're in. So halftime, the sweet spot used to be the 45 to let's say 60 year old. But what we have seen is that now 20 somethings and 80 somethings are in that season of halftime. So it's not it's not defined by age. It's defined by the season of life that you're in. You can have smoldering discontent when you're 27 years old. We just had a gentleman go through our program who was 27. And he was trying to figure out what's next. And we had someone who was 83. So great question, Gary. It, it, you know, the halftime does sound like it's, you know, 45 years old or whatever, but it's really much broader than that. And that sound you just heard was the captain putting the plane on the ground. The last words have been spoken on this conversation. 
uh, listener, I have a sort of a different ending than I normally do here, and that's this. Uh, because we we just kind of uh, expressed this idea, you know, maybe you were listening to this going, well, I'm 27, so I don't have to worry about this. What Dean just said was, it's for anybody. It's a it's a season of life. It's never too early. I think everybody on this on this uh, conversation would agree. It's never too early to begin thinking about how you can live your life, pursue your purpose, to help others to live your life of significance. So, I would uh, say that the the learning your homework assignment here, regardless of whether you're 24 or 94, your homework assignment here is to go back and listen to the section where Dean talks about those five characteristics of people who finish well. They know their calling. They're living their calling. They have cheerleaders, what Dean described as a personal board of directors who can speak truth to them. They're really focused on their family. They uh, have taken care of their health. It's really hard to live your life with significance if you have to live your life marginally because your health has suffered. So especially in your earlier years in life, right? Take care of your health. And then finally, the flexibility so that when they change your son's uh, sporting events <laughs> to 10 miles away, mm-hmm. you're like, okay, great. I get to spend 10 more minutes in the car to uh, chat with my boy. Uh, that's the way to look at it. Listener, thank you so much for spending time with us on this episode of Beyond the Crucible. We hope you have learned some things here that will indeed help you as you look to move beyond your crucible. And we we really encourage you to remember as you as you sort of think about what we've discussed on this show, what Warwick and Dean have discussed. Hopefully it's come through loud and clear that your crucible experiences are painful. We know that. We have two men here who have described their crucibles, different crucibles, some similarities, but 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 different circumstances, but the emotions are the same and they're painful, painful things. But here's the good news. Your crucible's not the end of your story. In fact, If you learn the lessons of that crucible, if you apply the lessons from that crucible to your life moving forward, it can be the leaping off point to a whole different and a whole better life. Far from being the last chapter in your story, your crucible can be the beginning of a new story, a new chapter in your story, and the best one of all, because where it leads, by the time you get to the final period on the final page, where it leads is to a life of significance.